Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hague Diplomacy Podcast. My name is Elon Madhavji and I'll be your host. Now, as we sit down for part two on culinary diplomacy, let me just remind you how we got here. Last episode, we talked about how heads of state and countries use food to communicate and posture themselves amongst one another. But this episode, we're going to discover how it's actually played a role in all of our lives, even to a degree you might not be aware of. See, countries have now noticed how successful food can be as a tool to brand themselves to the masses. And some have even dedicated hundreds of millions of euros to put their food on your plate and in the back of your mind. And later we're going to go a level deeper to understand how food can be a bridge builder, a peacemaker, and even a translator between individuals and communities across dividing lines. So hopefully once we're done today, you'll have a better understanding of how big a role culinary diplomacy has played in your life already, and maybe you can even bring these insights back to your community and to those around you. Let's begin by revisiting our friend Gilles Bergard from last episode. You'll remember that he's the founder and coordinator of Le Club des Chefs des Chefs, an international organization that's comprised of the chefs of heads of state. Now, while his organization operates at that state-to-state level, concerning itself with the meals between queens and presidents, they've also shifted their focus to how governments can speak to communities through food, and for good reason. In my opinion, gastro-diplomacy concerns the people. It means that try to meet the people, to, to, to put the people together to make, the, to make a friendship relationship through food. And it's why it's very important, you know, to, uh, uh, to, to, uh, to talk about the cuisine of your country, to, to, to let discover your country through food. And food now, it's a big part of soft power. Mm-hmm. Like, like like music, like paintings, like arts. You know? And um, if if you look, you know, some countries they are they are spending a lot of money, you know, to promote their food. If you like Spain, if you like Peru, if you are a Scandinavian country, and uh, now Peru is known in the world because of its kitchen. I can tell you that thirty years ago, nobody knows. Oh, oh, <laughs> what was Peru? And nobody knows that Peru had a, a beautiful cuisine. You know? I mean, they want maybe to visit the country. And, and this is, uh, is, for me, is, is very important. And uh, with the, now all the young people and old people like food, and you have a lot of TV series about food, about chefs. And uh, the, the gastro diplomacy in these films, you know, is, is, in my opinion, very, very important. Clearly, there's so much more on the table here than just using food to connect heads of state. What we're now talking about, actually, is how food can bring people closer to other people and other cultures. But what I want to focus on is one particular part of what Gilles is talking about. And that's that phenomenon of governments investing massive amounts of money and resources into promoting their food worldwide. Now, you've heard the name Peru and Thailand come up, 
and you're going to hear it a few more times. And that's because they are the pioneers of what we call track to culinary diplomacy. And that's when countries use cuisine to speak to us, the people. If you're still not sure what I'm talking about, maybe you've noticed the rising popularity of Peruvian and Thai food around you, especially in places outside of those countries where there's no significant diaspora or immigrant population. And personally, just in my experience, I've noticed how common it is to order Thai food or go out for an exotic Peruvian dish, especially for people in my generation. But when I talk to my parents or their friends, they're almost surprised you can easily find that food around the corner in any given city. As I did more research on this topic, I realized that I wasn't ordering pad thai or having lomo saltado by coincidence. As I enjoyed those delicious meals, I was also digesting a new culture and language and national identity that was being fed to me by the design of a government. See, both these countries have identified their cuisine as a major export and source of soft power, and they've made it a priority of theirs to put us in touch with that. So how does that work? Here's Sam Chappell-Sokol, author of a 2013 Hague Journal of Diplomacy piece called Culinary Diplomacy, Breaking Bread to Win Hearts and Minds. And he's going to explain it to us a bit better. Track two diplomacy refers to public diplomacy. Um, for the most part, it's, it's, a, it's a state to a foreign public. So when I first wrote that paper in 2012, I had started to notice there were starting to be some studies of this track two level. Um, the most famous example in the, when where the term culinary diplomacy originally came from was, was an article in like The Guardian in 2002 about the Thai Kitchen for the World project. The Thai government invested tens of millions of dollars in disseminating Thai cuisine around the world um, in order to increase awareness, cultural relevance around the world, as well as, as trade, as well as tourism. So it was both, there were both cultural and economic um, reasons for that, uh, for that project. Further projects included Peru launched a, launched a project of kind of private public partnership with the chef Gaston Acurio to disseminate the, the good word of Peruvian food. Um, the South Korean government, even the North Korean government, Malaysia, the United States got on it, in on it in 2014, um, the, the State Department launched its culinary diplomatic partnership, which sent chefs, American chefs abroad to teach about American culture through food. So this is all the track to government sponsored to foreign publics, which has really taken off over the past 10 years with the, the Thai government really provided a model for that. Um, and we can talk more about it, but I think there's a lot more work to be done to understand what that is, to understand the best practices, um, how, how it's most effective and how it could be more effective. The point that's worth emphasizing here is similar to the one that this podcast has made in the past with regards to sport, gifts, and music. And that's that we are now recognizing that diplomacy has existed in many forms. And this is yet another discovery of a medium that can be harnessed by states to communicate with and influence a global community. Food, though, almost has a supreme power here simply because it's necessary for survival. Everyone eats. And studies have long shown that eating food of a particular country positively impacts your opinion of that country. So let's take Thailand, for example. 
When they started their Global Thai culinary diplomacy campaign in 2002, that's that project that Sam's talking about. Their goal is to increase tourism and spread their culture through food. Concretely, they wanted to make this happen through offering loans to Thai people opening up restaurants abroad, training international chefs in Thai cuisine, training local chefs and then sending them abroad, and branding their food, specifically Pad Thai, around the world. In the years since, the numbers speak for themselves. The amount of Thai restaurants has ballooned. They've actually tripled to over 15,000. And the amount of tourists has gone from less than 10 million to more than 40 million. And would you like to guess what over a third of those visitors said was a critical reason for their visit? Thai food. So with food being such an explicit mode of cultural exchange, and seeing how an entire country can open itself up to the world simply through sharing what its people eat, what else can food do? Just like food opened up Thailand to the world, can it also open up one person to another? What about an entire community? In a moment, Sam's going to walk us through what he calls Track 3 Culinary Diplomacy, which is the most local and individual level. It's between people. It's what happens when you put neighbors or even enemies at the same table and let the food do the talking. The track three, as you say, probably is most relevant, um, especially today, the past five years, and the kind of work that has burgeoned um, in light of a fracturing world or continuously, continually fracturing world, I guess we could say. But there have been numerous projects all around the world using food to, just like at the official diplomatic table at the head of state level, using food to even the playing field or to create connections, um, the idea of the contact theory, which is um, a 1950s theory from Gordon Allport, that just being in contact, being in close proximity to somebody else and starting to like absorb who they are in a personal way starts to get beyond any conflict that they might have. Um, that's a deeply embedded idea of conflict resolution. So with Track 3 Culinary Diplomacy, it's projects that are bringing people from opposite sides of a conflict together to make food together. Even if they don't speak the same language, they might both be schooled in, in cooking. And it, it gets to that kind of heart a bit. Like, even if you don't make a dish that my grandmother made, you might make a dish that looks exactly like my grandmother made. It just has a different name and the yogurt has a different consistency or whatever it is. but especially in a, you know this not to generalize but in a lot of conflict zones there's a lot more history than there is division there's a lot more shared history than the political state or the propaganda would would let would let live um so when you get people together from opposite sides of the border they're able to strip away all that political stuff all of that nationalist stuff and realize now we're in a, in a, not to get as as it's been charged against me sometimes hummus kumbaya, but that we all actually share more in common than than not, um, which doesn't ever negate the history of conflict and the history of of 
you know, all that, all that comes with conflict. So that's the track three look at culinary diplomacy and, um, you know, in the United States in the 2016 to 2020 period, there's a huge movement towards, towards food, food as diplomacy because we had, we had such an intensely hateful, continue, continue to hateful period where people couldn't see eye to eye on anything because there was just such this big, this big divide. Um, and there were quite a few projects that started with food as, as the, the quote unquote good offices to, to borrow a term from diplomacy, just sit at the table, eat. And hopefully that, hopefully we can just start there because we can't start with anything else. Um, and Israel-Palestine, um, a lot of work being done with refugee restaurants, refugee chefs in, in Europe from Syrian country, from Syria and, and other Middle Eastern countries that have relocated to Europe much, you know, with pushback from local communities, there's been a lot of work to help that integration process through food. In terms of this, the track three, both, I, I think it has always been happening. There have always been efforts to, to bring people together over food, clearly. Um, but because, you know, it's, it's an echo chamber when you hear about a good project, like, I, like Make America Dinner Again was a, was a project in 2016, 17, started by some, some folks who didn't like what was happening in the United States at the time. Um, who knows if that particular idea concept would have come up had um, Conflict Kitchen, which was a project in Pittsburgh by a couple of artists who were using food to teach people about countries with which the United States was in conflict. So they had a, a cold or hot conflict. They had a pop-up that was from Afghanistan, a pop-up from Iran, North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela. So the milieu of the past decade of both an ever-increasing interest in food from food media, you know, food network, how food TV just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Um, more, you know, everybody makes sourdough now, right? After, after the year of pandemic, like everybody considers that everybody's had to become a home, a home cook because that's how a lot of people have eaten in the past year. So it's, you know, it's, it's the most exciting for, for you and I, for both practitioners in the field, as well as walking down the street and finding a restaurant from somewhere you've never heard of before and seeing what it's all about. That's, that's culinary diplomacy. It was roughly around this point in my conversation with Sam that I felt we needed kind of a reality check because the work that we're talking about, Sam's work, for example, which is of course a fundamental piece in the field of study of culinary diplomacy, but also the work of Le Club des Chefs des Chefs, like we talked about last episode, and perhaps the work that inspired Sam to write his piece. They were written in a different time. Even work written 20 years ago is written in a world that we don't live in right now with the division that Sam's talking about that's affected civil society in a way 
that's never happened before. Also with the way that a pandemic has actually affected the way that we think about food and services around food and how we actually enjoy food together. I couldn't help but feel that we needed to address that. So as we neared the end of our conversation, I wanted to know from Sam where he felt culinary diplomacy would go and specifically on these two tracks that we've talked about, track two and track three, considering all that he knows and all that he's written and studied about culinary diplomacy, but also all that he's personally experienced in the world around him in 2020 and 2021, where is culinary diplomacy going next? In the track two space, this is not what I want, but what I think should happen is that more countries should engage with culinary diplomacy more more countries should more countries and regions um, should really push for especially now that we can get back to tourism we can get back to 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 exploring out of our out of our comfort zones or out of our out of our necks of the wood um would be an interesting moment to engage or re-engage with culinary diplomacy campaigns um, so many people around the world have had to, you know, shelter in place literally and figuratively stay home for a long time now that this is a great time for culinary tourism. This is a great time to get out and about and like learn something new and engage with a new, a new culture or something you might've just watched on TV or might've just, um, explored online. So that's, that's that level, but I have no personal need for, for countries to increase their tourism. Um, what I think the most impact could be is on that third, that third tier where as we, as we discussed, like there just hasn't been, we haven't been able to engage in this way for so long that I really do hope that people are able to put more value and more thought behind what they're putting in their bodies. You know, this brings in conversations of climate change and meat consumption and what, you know, what the kind of planet we're leaving for our kids, but also, I mean, it's all, it's all tied together. What we're putting on our plates, what we're putting in our bodies and who we're, who we're sitting at the table with. Um, there's always room to, to do more and to do better. Um, so I, th I think what I hope for is just a kind of a continued understanding or more thought uh, after a year of a lot of people really hustling to put three meals, a, three meals on the table a day and to feed their families, to feed their kids, to feed their communities, that we really understand a, a little bit more widely what how important food is for each of us and how powerful the statement we can make when we, when we consume a meal together and, and um, when we get together with, with strangers over food. 
At the end of part one, you may have walked away with this idea that culinary diplomacy was this mysterious or glamorous topic that pulled at the strings of the kitchens of the most powerful. And to a degree, that's definitely true. I mean, that's certainly how I felt and why I found it such a cool topic. But as you think about it further, just as we did today and just as Sam was telling us, you can see how we've all kind of been drawn in and exposed to other parts of the world just through sampling those different cuisines. And some countries have even become more likable and attractive to visit because of that. Now, of course, it would be hard to measure how much it benefits the reputation of those countries, or even if it spills over into how other countries treat them. But it's obvious that culinary diplomacy doesn't hurt those chances. But what might be most relevant to you and me is the impact that sharing a meal can have on how we feel about those around us, but most importantly, those different from us. There are now a host of humanitarian and peace-centered NGOs that actively use that power of food to comfort and reconcile in times of crisis. So now as you walk away from this episode, I hope you do so with new tools to recognize when food is being sold to you as an idea or identity rather than just nutrients. And maybe you can go back to your own community and use culinary diplomacy to bring it closer together. Try that new cuisine you've always wanted to, learn a bit about where it comes from, and use that table as an opportunity to sit next to rather than across from someone. Before we close, I just want to thank you for listening to this episode and to this little mini-series. I also want to invite you to reach out to us by email at podcasthjd at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts, questions, or even criticisms, or if you just want to say hi and let us know where you're listening from, that would be fantastic. My name is Elon Medhavji. Until next time.